two films, one theme. This is Words and Movies. Well, hello there. Thank you, Rebecca. Welcome to yet another episode of Words and Movies. I am your co-host, Claude Call. And I'm your other co-host, Sean Gallagher. And since this is the first episode we're recording in 2023, Happy New Year. Yes, Happy New Year to you. And this is continuing our series of movies from around the world. Now, a lot has been written about the reasons why movies, world cinema made such an impact in the United States after World War II. The primary reason being, according to most of the people writing about it, is that movies from around the world uh, contained content, uh, read sex and violence, that wasn't allowed on American screens at the time because of the production card or not allowed in uncensored form, let's just put it that way, until American filmmakers themselves started shipping away at the code in the 1950s. What's not commented on as much is that in addition to challenging the content notions of what could and what couldn't be in a movie, movies from around the world were also trying to challenge the form of movies from Hollywood. Now, there were quite a number of movies from around the world that told stories in the classical Hollywood um, tradition from A to B to C, Act 1, Act 2, Act 3, and so on. And many of them were quite good, but there were others that were trying to mess things up a little in the way that the stories were told. Which brings us to the two movies that we're going to be talking about today, which are from, from Sweden, from 1966, Persona, written and directed by Ingmar Bergman, and f although it was released in the U.S. in 1967, and from Britain from 1968, though it was pushed back for release until 1970, Performance, co-directed by Donald Camel, who also wrote the script, and Nicholas Rogue. And both of these movies uh, challenge the content in a lot of ways of what you could show, uh, especially the latter, but they also are not your typical normal movies. It's and fair. Claude okay. <laughs> always uh, mentions that, or sometimes mentions that he thinks I pick movies that are hard for him to do a plot description for. And while I do not do that on purpose, these two movies definitely fit the bill here. And I'm not even sure what we're going to call this episode yet. Maybe like mind screw movies or psychological transference <laughs> or whatever. But bear in mind, uh, we are definitely jumping through the rabbit hole with both of these movies. So 
We'll just jump right in there as Claude gives us the plot description for Persona. And weirdly enough, I didn't really have a tough time doing the synopses for these two films. But Persona, we open up with images of camera equipment and projectors lighting up and projecting lots of brief cinematic glimpses, including a crucifixion. There's a brief shot of an erect penis, which got cut in the American release. <laughs> you should excuse the expression. Uh, there's a tarantula. There are clips from a comedic silent movie that involves a man being chased by death and Satan. And I've seen that film and I can't remember what it's called. And there's also the slaughter of a lamb. The last thing we see in that sequence is a boy who wakes up in a hospital next to several corpses. And he's reading a book and he's caressing a blurry image of two women's faces. And later on, we learn who those women are. So we have Liv Ullman, who is Elizabeth Volger, uh, Vogler. She is an actress who, as the expression goes, goes up while on stage. Three months later, despite not being diagnosed with any actual impairment, she appears to have gone mute electively. Alma, who is played by B.B. Anderson, is the young nurse who is assigned to take care of her. Uh, the hospital administrator, who is played by Margareta Kruk, um, offers up her personal cottage by the sea as a place for Alma to nurse Elizabeth back to health. Now, though Elizabeth is nearly catatonic when the film begins, she does react with panic upon seeing footage of the Vietnamese Buddhist monk self-immolating on television, which at that time was fairly new footage. And she also laughs mockingly at the soap opera that Alma listens to on the radio. As the two women leave the hospital together, Alma reads aloud a letter that Elizabeth's husband has sent her, and that includes a photograph of her young son. And you've got to look really carefully, but it's the boy we see earlier in the film. Together in the cottage, Elizabeth starts to relax, although she continues to be completely silent and non-responsive. Alma speaks constantly to break the silence, at first about books she's reading and trivial matters, but then her anxieties and her relationship with her fiancé, who's named Carl Henrik, begin creeping into her dialogue, or monologue, I should say. Carl Henrik doesn't think Alma has any ambition, and Alma frequently compares herself to Elizabeth and begins to grow attached to her. As time goes by, Alma confesses to cheating on her fiancé in a menage a quatre with underage boys. She becomes pregnant and had Carl Henrik's friend abort the baby, and that was that, as she put it. But she's still not sure how to process this abortion mentally, and she starts breaking down. We hear Elizabeth whisper, you want to go to bed or you'll fall asleep at the table. And Alma hears it, but she also dismisses it as a dream. Elizabeth later on denies speaking at all. Alma drives into town, taking Elizabeth's letters to um, mail out, but impulsively she parks by the roadside to read what Elizabeth had written because one of the letters is unsealed. She discovers in these letters that Elizabeth has been analyzing her and studying her. Alma returns, she's distraught, and she accidentally breaks a drinking glass on the footpath outside the, uh, outside the cabin, but she leaves the glass there, and indeed, it does wind up cutting Elizabeth. When Elizabeth's feet start to bleed, her gaze meets Alma's knowingly, and the film literally breaks itself apart. The screen flashes white, scratch marks appearing up and down the image, we hear screechy sounds, and the film appears to unwind, it burns up, then we have Brief flashes of the prelude appearing for fractions of a second each. So, intermission? No. The film picks up again immediately. So now we're following Elizabeth through the house, but the image is very blurry, and 
it snaps back into focus when Elizabeth looks out the window before she walks outside to meet Alma, who is weepy and angry. At lunch, she tells Elizabeth she's been hurt by Elizabeth, talking about her behind her back, and finally just begs her to speak. When Elizabeth does not react, the nurse flies into a rage. Alma tries to attack her and chases her through the cottage, but Elizabeth hits her during the scuffle, causing Alma's nose to start bleeding. In retaliation, Alma goes to grab a pot of boiling water off the stove and get ready to fling it at Elizabeth, but stops when she hears Elizabeth say, no, don't. Alma says Elizabeth wouldn't have spoken had she not feared death. Alma goes to the bathroom, washes her face, and tries to pull herself together. She then goes back to Elizabeth, and she's frustrated by her unresponsiveness, tells her, you're inaccessible. They said you're healthy, but your sickness is of the worst kind. It makes you seem healthy. You act it so well, everybody believes it, everyone except me, because I know how rotten you are inside. Elizabeth tries to walk away, but Alma goes after her. Elizabeth flees, and Alma chases her, begging for forgiveness to no avail. That evening, Elizabeth opens a book she's reading, and in it, she finds the famous photo of Jews being arrested in the Warsaw Ghetto. Elizabeth stares at details of the photograph, but mostly at the boy with his hands raised. That night, Alma watches Elizabeth sleep, analyzing her face and the scars she covers with makeup. She hears a man shouting outside and finds that it's Elizabeth's husband, Mr. Vogler, who's played by Gunnar Bjornstrand, out in the garden. Mr. Vogler mistakes Alma for his wife and, despite her repeatedly telling him, I'm not your wife, delivers a monologue about his love for her and the son that they have together. Part of what he says is a repetition of words he wrote to Elizabeth earlier in the film about how we must see each other as two anxious children. Elizabeth stands quietly beside the two, holding Alma's hand, and Alma admits her love for Mr. Vogler and accepts her role as the mother of Elizabeth's child. The two make love with Elizabeth sitting quietly next to the bed, and afterward, Alma cries. The next morning, Alma catches Elizabeth in the kitchen with a pained expression on her face, and she's holding a picture of a small boy. It's the same photograph that she was received earlier. Alma then narrates Elizabeth's life story back to her while the camera focuses tightly on Elizabeth's face. At a party one night, a man tells her, Elizabeth, you have it virtually all in your armory as a woman and an artist, but you lack motherliness. She laughs because it sounds silly, but the idea sticks in her mind and she lets her husband impregnate her. As the pregnancy progresses, she grows increasingly worried about her stretching and swelling body, her responsibility to her child, the pain of birth, and the idea of abandoning her career. Everyone Elizabeth knows constantly says, isn't she beautiful? She's never been so beautiful. But Elizabeth makes repeated attempts to abort the fetus. After the child is born, through a forceps delivery after a long labor. She's repulsed by it, and she prays for the death of her son. The child grows up tormented and desperate for affection. Then the scene repeats, but the camera's facing on Alma, and she repeats the entire monologue again. But by the end, one half of the face of Alma and the other of Elizabeth's face are shown in split screen so that they appear to have become one face. Alma finally panics and shouts, I'm not like you. I don't feel like you. I'm not Elizabeth Vogler. You are Elizabeth Vogler. I'm just here to help you. Alma leaves and later returns uh, back in her nurse uniform to find that Elizabeth has become completely catatonic. Alma gets angry and cuts her own arm, forcing Elizabeth's lips to the wound and then subsequently beating her. Alma packs her things and she leaves the cottage alone, and the camera turns away from the women to show the crew and the director filming the scene. But then we end on the boy and the blurry photos, 
and the projector equipment we saw at the beginning of the film goes dark. End of movie. By the way, yes. uh, that silent movie that you mentioned is one of Bergman's early movies made before, and when I say early, I mean it was made before he hit it big around the world with Smiles of a Summer Night. The name of the movie is um, The Devil's Wonton, though ah. it's also known as Prison. And I have not seen this movie, although I've heard pretty good things about it. It does not have anybody in here that would be recognizable to unless unless you know all of Bergman's early movies, I guess. It doesn't have many, if any, of members of his usual stock company. Hmm. But that is the clip that we are seeing. And it is actually the movie is about a film director. So it's kind of appropriate that in a movie that is determined to make sure you understand that you're watching a film and is breaking the fourth wall, that the clip that they show is a movie about a film director. But anyway, this movie is number six on my all-time... Top five. Top 10, well, <laughs> 11 favorite movies. And it is the sixth movie on that list that we've talked about on this show. We're going to get to numbers seven and eight in our next episode. And more has been written about this movie than about any other Bergman, any other movie that Bergman has made, you know, what's it, what's it really about? What's going on? What are the themes going on here? Does anyone really understand what this movie is about beyond the plot? And as much as I love the movie, I must confess that I don't think I've ever completely figured out what's going on, nor do I think I ever will. But that doesn't change the fact that, A, this is an influential film, and we'll get into some of the films and many ways that it has been an influence and B it is an utterly beguiling film and yeah. I felt that way from when I first saw it how about you Claude oh absolutely I my this was my entry to Bergman actually I saw this in an art of film class so I would have been in college so this has been the early 80s and I was absolutely captivated by this by this film it was just it was just beautiful looking to me and it was this cool story and i loved seeing as you got closer to the ending and and the possibility of these personalities actually starting to merge a little bit and and the way that bergman handles it as compared to you know we'll, we'll talk about it a little bit more when we do performance and how that how it happens there but but the the way that the, the characters come together and kind of sort of become one person for a while was just just 
fascinating to me. It really, really was. I, I love. I have loved this film for the very beginning. Yes, and I saw it sometime in the early to mid nineties. I got it out of the library. This was actually not my introduction to Bergman. That was the Seventh Seal, which, contrary to this is, uh, despite what you may have heard, pretty accessible. Yeah, yeah. You know, whereas this, I can't say that for certain. Well, I mean, you get get the opening and you get that break in the middle and and that's the things that make it a little bit more oblique, I think. And, and, And the way it was kind of explained to me in that class was... You know, Bergen was just kind of reminding you that, you know, like, this is just a movie kind of thing. Everything is artifice, which is kind of the theme of the film itself. Or or at least one of them. Yeah. And, and, and kind of what, what, um, what Ullman's character is up to as an actress. And, and this is pretty mentioned pretty explicitly in the dialogue too, is like, this is what you're about. You're an actress. You're all about artifice. Everything you do is fake. You have to put on the mask and you keep it on the mask and then you discard the mask when you're done with it. When you're, when you're done with the role, when you're bored with what you're doing, when it's over, whatever, you're not doing that anymore. And it's one of the reasonings that the doctor has for sending her to the seaside cottage in the first place is like, okay, you know what? You're doing a role. You got to wait. We we just have to wait for you to get bored with this role, and then you're going to discard it. So you know what? You don't have to do that here in the hospital. You can go do that in the seaside cottage. You know, have fun. Go. See you later. And that's and now, that's kind of the way it's handled. And and so, you know, whether you could draw a direct one to one line between the imagery you get at the beginning of the film and the that particular theme, yeah, it's a little bit. You got to do some deep reading to do that, I think. Now, we should mention that the son is played by Jorgen Lindstrom, yeah. who also played a young boy, a son of one of the main characters in Bergman's movie, The Silence. Um, he, I forget whether he's playing the son of forget which woman he's playing the son of if he's playing the son of Ingrid Thielen or Gunnar Lindblom but he does appear in that movie as well now one of well let me first talk about how this movie came to be Bergman was going to do a movie called The Cannibals, but then he got very sick, sick enough that he had to go into the hospital. And he had these images pop into his head when he was sick with pneumonia, and that's how he came up with the story of the movie. And he happened to see B.B. Anderson, who was a regular of his. She was in The Seventh Seal, along with a few other films of his. And so was Gunnar Bjornstrand, by the way. She altogether made 11 movies with Bergman, 
Bjorn Strand made 17 movies with Bergman, but Ullman, up to that point, was only known as a stage actress who had maybe done one or two films. But Bergman saw the two together and decided that they would work perfectly together since he thought they did look somewhat similar. And this was the first of 10 movies that he and Allman made together. And they became romantically involved during the making of this film. Now, as I mentioned, when we talked about shame, uh, the personal relationship did not last long, but the professional relationship did. They made 10 movies altogether. But not only is this my favorite of the movies that they did together, this is my favorite performance by her, and this is my favorite performance by an actress in any movie that I've ever seen. Yeah, that's kind of crazy, if only because she says so little. Everything is done silently. Because I, I yes. and, and I'm, I'm trying to think again, I'm li- thinking back and I did rewatch it for the, for this recording. And I think the only time we actually hear her voice is no stop. And that might be it. Cause we, we see her on stage briefly, but she's not actually performing. She's already gone up and in the hospital, not a word. There's the laughing, but, but other than that, nope, 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 nope. And the whisper. Maybe. Yeah, the, I was going to bring up the whisper, but again, you know, that could all be just an Alma's mind. You never know. Bergman doesn't try to explain that to us. But Ullman does so much with her face and her eyes. Now, and just that, and, and just her, her pose, like, they're just, yes. you know, the, the way she frames herself in some of these shots. And, and just kind of like when we do the occasional long shot, there are not a lot of them in this film. But there, you can see just the way she comports her entire body when she's in repose. You know, there's one scene in where she's sitting in bed. It's a it's a long shot from the foot of the bed, and and she's she's lying on the bed and she's smoking and listening to Alma speak. Or when she is down on the beach, or and regardless, it, it is just there's a presence that she that she brings to the to the image. So she winds up in some cases like. Stealing the scene without doing a damn thing. Yes, and we should talk about the way that this was shot as well, because most of this movie is done in Mm -hmm. close-ups. There are a few long shots, not a lot. And when we say long shots, we're not talking about how the long-running shots, we're talking about... um, move shots where the characters are in the background and the camera is uh, far away from them. And I didn't realize this until I saw it on the IMDb trivia page. But now that I think about it, this makes perfect sense. There are almost no medium shots in this either. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things that contributes to the dreamlike nature of the movie. And this was one of Bergman's many uh, collaborations with cinematographer Sen Nikvist, 
who did an excellent job here. And another thing that he and production designer B.B. Lindstrom do is they strip everything down in the interior shots in the movie. You know, there may be one or two pictures hanging on the wall in the scenes in the island, but that's about it. You know, it's very sparsely directed. And the walls are completely white, and that color comes through almost uh, blindingly so. There are there is that scene, that famous scene um, that's almost like the dream when Alma hears the whisper, and then um, Elizabeth comes behind her while she's standing, and it looks like she's either kissing her on the back of the neck or biting her or about to do that, and then we fade away, and that's sort of done with a grayish tinge, mm-hmm. and then. Um, there are scenes where we emphasize the black sweater that Ama is we- that uh, Elizabeth is wearing. The costume designer, by the way, is uh, known by the name Mago. He's uh, from Germany, and he does a really good job of designing and he worked a lot with Bergman also on through glass darkly and smiles of a summer night among other movies and he does a good job of costuming these two women to make them seem interchangeable which is one of the themes of the movie and as I said one of the things that adds to the dreamlike state of the movie and um i don't know if we're ever going to get to talk about a movie called my night at maud which was written and directed by eric romer but in that movie all the the contrasts between black and white and the accentuation of the black and white colors I thought had been the best I'd ever seen of that until I saw Persona. So he does, Bergman does, and all the technical people I mentioned do a really good job with that. Yeah, as far as that art direction, you know, I was, when I was doing the rewatch, and now I'm doing it like to kind of like take mental notes for our discussion. And I did, I, I was noticing carefully like the shots in the hospital and yeah i was like wow these are like some really stark shots there's nothing on the walls there's very little in the room you know and and i and i think that's going to we're going to compare this now to what happens when we're in the cottage there's going to be stuff everywhere and blah 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 and then you get to the cottage and you realize no not so much really but the fact is this place has windows and curtains and there's a beach outside and whatever else. So there's really still not a lot going on in these rooms. They're still very plain spaces. It just feels busier because there happens to be more stuff elsewhere in the room because there are windows. You you kind of take it as a busier space, even though eh, not so much really. And And similarly, like the beach, it's not just a plain beach. There's some rocks and whatever going on. And I think there's like a jetty going out. And so, but 
I don't think you see any other people nearby. No. And, and, and so, again, it's just the two of them alone on the beach. So it's a relatively stark space, even though there's more stuff within the shot, you know, than you, you yes. I mean, he could he could have used a plain sandy beach and gotten a similar effect, but, I, but it, it's just kind of interesting. Like the rocks give it a little bit of visual feel to it that it's a different place from the hospital. And yet at the same time, there's really nothing around them. Right. Now, a word about where the beach scenes were shot. It was shot on Faroe Island, which is also where Bergman shot Shame. And he had shot a couple movies there before this as well. And it's also where Bergman shot a lot of his movies and where he actually ended up living for a lot of his the second half of his life, except for that one time when he had to go to Germany because of tax evasion charges. But he knew the island well, and he uses it very well um, as far as accentuating those the ragged parts of the beach, as you mentioned, and so on. So you're never really quite sure, even though there is this dreamlike atmosphere through the movie, whether it is a dream or whether it is really happening. And now that leads us to how this movie has influenced so many other movies. And while, as I said, Seventh Seal is probably the most accessible or one of the most accessible of his movies, arguably his most accessible movie, I think, is uh, Fanny and Alexander, uh, which he said was going to be his last movie. But even though Persona is a puzzle movie, it's influenced quite a lot of other movies. Um, I remember, for example, watching... Uh, single white female, one of the many lookout horror <laughs> thrillers that came out in 1992, and wanting to tell the folks there, uh, guys, Persona was already a horror movie. Uh, <laughs> if you're going to rip it off, do it right. And then also, um, arguably David Lynch's most well-known movie now, Mulholland Drive, was definitely influenced by Persona. And uh, Brian De Palma's Femme Fatale is one of the is another movie that I think uh, clearly shows the influence of Persona. And there are all kinds of ways you can interpret this. As I said, you know, there is the idea this is a horror movie. The fact that, you know, at one point it looks like Elizabeth is, as you mentioned, the synopsis is sucking blood from Amma's wrist. And then, as I mentioned, there's the thing the dreamlike sequence where it seems like she might be biting the back of her neck before the shot fades away. Or, as I said, she could be kissing her. So this has also been interpreted possibly as a uh, 
a lesbian relationship between the two of them, or they could just be two halves of the same person. Right, especially uh, in as much as this is the same night where um where 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 Elizabeth tells her to go to bed, you know, whispers to her, go to bed. She goes to bed. She appears to like go to bed and then wake up moments later when Elizabeth walks into the room. This happens and then she walks out again. And and so the next morning, you know, Alma comes right out and says, Did you were you in the room last night? Did you speak to me? And Elizabeth's mm-mm, not me. <laughs> so she's denying everything. So now we're wondering if the whole thing was a dream or not. Right. Not to mention when the husband shows up and he's speaking to Alma and uh, she claims, no, I'm not Elizabeth, I'm not your wife, but then she accepts it and says, yes, I am your wife, or words to that effect. And as much as I love Ullman's performance in this movie, we also have to give credit to B.B. Anderson, yeah. because she's basically the audience surrogate here. She's the one whose eyes we're seeing this through to try and wonder, hey, what's really going on here? And she does a very good job with that and carries off that monologue scene about the uh, menage de quatre, as you put it, which we mentioned briefly when we talked about Godard's weekend, because he parodies that scene mm-hmm. early on in the movie when um, Muriel Dark's character is giving that monologue in her kitchen. Yes. Uh, Now, is there anything else that you want to mention here before we wrap this up? Uh, Two things. Well, first, like I said before, you know, don't, don't be scared off because it's Bergman because it's, it's a really cool film. It's a little weird to follow at first, but just get past those first couple of minutes You'll be fine. Don't worry about it. It's a, it's a great, great film. The other thing is just for the uh, for the geography nuts out there, I'm sure there are some, but uh, we just want to make sure that you are not confused here. Uh, Faroe Island is not the same as the Faroe Islands, which doesn't, which kind of sounds phonetically the same there. But but the but the Faroe Islands are the ones just north of Great Britain. That's not where this film was shot. This is on Faroe, F-A-R-O. Okay, and there's like an umlaut over the O, and there's a diacritical over the A as well. But anyway, that's actually over in the um, in the Baltic Sea, so they they are not nearly at all the same place. That's all. Right, but it is off the coast of Sweden. Right, and the other is a actually a Danish Danish island. Right. So, um, we're, when we come back, we're going to talk about. Another mind-screwing movie, Performance. (laughs) That's coming up immediately in your podcast feed, so stick around. (laughs) 